So today we're going to be finishing up our look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you're welcome to do so. I'll be putting the verses in the NIV on the screen. Uh, so what we looked at last Sunday was part of Peter's instructions on how for us to live as exiles in a non-Christian world. And Peter began by praising God for the awesome salvation that we Christians have been given and for the sure inheritance that we're going to receive. Peter calls it an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. He says that this inheritance is certain because it's kept safely in heaven by God. And he says that this certainty, this knowing that we're going to receive this great inheritance, this great salvation, it gives us a great joy, a joy that enables us to live lives of meaning and purpose amid the difficulties of this world. So today, the part that we're going to talk about is that second part of this passage, the focus on the trials and the hardships of the world and how to endure them. Peter says in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice. The this is the sure knowledge of our coming salvation. So he says, In all this, in this knowledge, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Peter says he describes these trials as now and for a little while. One of the common denominators of suffering is that while you're in the middle of suffering, it seems like it had no beginning and it'll have no end. Not, not that it's short and brief, but that it's lasting forever. Think about the last time that you got sick. When, you, when you've been sick for four or five days straight, it gets to the point where you can no longer remember what it was like to be well. And you can't ever imagine a time when you'll be well again. Wellness starts to feel like a foreign and imaginary concept. That's built into the nature of pain. If you search for the phrase, how long, in the Psalms, it appears about 70 times. Often it's King David writing when he was in anguish, or Asaph writing when Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians. They cried out, how long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Yet Peter here calls our trials now and for a little while. When he does that, he's tapping into that same thought that Paul expresses in 2 Corinthians. We do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So Paul's light and momentary troubles included beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, prisons, snake bites, and near drownings. So how can he call them light and momentary? And how can Peter refer to them as now and for a little while? It's not to downplay the severity of the sufferings that we go through, but to say that in comparison with the great reward that it is earning for us, it's small and brief in comparison. It's brief because no matter how long they last in this life, they pale in comparison to the eternal joy that's coming. And they're light because they will pale in comparison with the inexpressible joy we will experience in God's presence for all of eternity. Maybe that's been you at some point in your life crying out to god how long lord how long 
as some grief drags on and on. But the antidote, the antidote to that feeling of what seems like unendurable, unending suffering, it isn't an answer to the question how long. It's not five minutes, five days, five years. The answer is always a short time compared to the eternity of blessing that God has prepared for you. That's the answer that helps us to endure and the one that we must continually call to mind. In verse 7, Peter says that these light and momentary troubles that are now and for a little while have a purpose. He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The basic gist of what Peter's saying is pretty obvious. Your trials prove the genuineness of your faith, and your true faith will be greatly praised by Jesus when he comes. But there's a lot going on here that isn't entirely clear. First, there's that part about proven. It doesn't mean that the genuineness of your faith is in doubt to God, and that he's testing you to find out if it's real. He already knows it's real. He knows everything. He knew it was real the moment that he saved you. But the way that you endure trials in this world will reveal the evidence of your faith before all the universe, before men and angels as well. Do you remember in the book of Job, when Satan came before God, God said to him, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God didn't need to learn anything about Job. He already knew everything about Job's character, and he declared it in the first chapter of the book. But God allowed Job to go through these trials because he wanted Job's faith demonstrated to the world, not proven to himself, but proven before the world. God desires the same for us. That our faith, which God already knows about, would be proven and demonstrated to us and the world. When we've passed through the trials, we can look back and we can know for sure that we belong to God because we can see how he sustained us in ways that we couldn't have on our own. So as a result of trials, our faith is proven. Another thing, though, that he says is that our faith is of greater worth than gold. We human beings sometimes have a difficult time properly placing relative values on things. Sometimes we value material things more than spiritual things. Sometimes we value hurting others more than we value our own well-being. We value hanging on to our grudges more than we value our own peace and mental health. Golda Meir once said that the Arabs and, the, and Israel would be at peace when the Arabs love their children more than they hate us. Relative values. We place a lot of value on gold, but our proven faith is even more valuable. Peter says that gold perishes even though refined by fire. What he means is that we're willing to stick gold in a fire to refine it, to burn off the, the impurities, and gold is temporary and perishable. It won't outlast this world, but your proven faith is. So if we're willing to put gold through fire to just get a more refined gold, how much more should we be willing to go through the fire of trials and suffering 
ourselves. Fire is a strange thing. It's a chemical reaction that can take a solid object, wood or paper, for example, and convert it into a gas. It cooks food. It heats homes. It makes people sleepy when they sit around one at night. But fire can also destroy. In 1906, after an earthquake, the city of San Francisco burned for four days and nights. Destroying 80% of the city, it killed over 30 sorry, 3,000 people and over 25,000 buildings burned. Fires once kindled can be hard to extinguish. In the country of Turkmenistan, Russian geologists in 1971, they were digging near a natural gas deposit. And it turns out that there was a large bubble of methane gas under the ground, like a giant cave, and the heavy equipment collapsed and plunged to the bottom of the newly formed crater. So the geologists, to keep the methane from seeping out and poisoning people, they thought, well, just burn it off. Easy peasy. So they set it on fire in 1971. Today, the crater, which is still burning 50 years later, has become a tourist attraction. They call it Darvasa, the gates of hell. Sometimes, though, even the bad part of fire, the part that destroys, can result in something good. When the fire of London raised the city, it made way for the beautiful rebuilding projects of Sir Christopher Wren. And forest fires that burn thousands of acres are the only thing that allow the seeds of the lodgepole pine to open and sprout new trees. When a forest fire sweeps through, it leaves behind carbon-rich soil that causes thousands of new seedlings to spring up. So sometimes fire though it's painful, can produce good things. As long as we're living as strangers and travelers in this foreign land, we will endure trials. God really doesn't give us a choice in the matter, which is good, because if he did, we'd surely say no. But we endure trials simply because the world is broken. Things that aren't directly our fault at all. In... John 9, Jesus and his disciples came across a man who had been born blind. And his disciples asked him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Just think about that. First, they assumed, like Job's friends, that if something bad happened, it must be his fault. Secondly, they asked if this man sinned to make himself be born blind. He was born blind. When would he have sinned? As a baby in the womb? So strange that this is their reaction, but it was ingrained into their minds that sin is always caused by one per sorry, sufferings and trials and, and hardships are always caused by one individual person's sin. But Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned that, the, that this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he went on to heal his blindness. So some of our trials happen to us naturally because we live in a broken world and they aren't tied to any particular person's fault. Sometimes, though, we endure trials because people are evil and they do bad things to us. Sometimes we endure trials because we're foolish and evil and we inflict wounds on ourselves. But we also endure trials because we're Christians. Jesus promised that if we belong to him, we would have great reward, but that we would also have great trials. In Mark 10, he told his followers, No one 
who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. You know what's great? God has promised to use all of these kinds of trials, ones that are just natural, ones that we bring on ourselves, ones that evil people do to us, ones that are done to us because we're Christians. God has promised to take all of them and use them to refine us and to shape us and to make us more like himself. You may be right now in the middle of one of these lightened momentary troubles. If so, it certainly won't feel light or momentary to you. You might be crying out to God, how long, Lord? If that's not you today, then you could be certain that it has been you at one time or another, or one day it might be. It's the condition for living here in this broken world. And when we endure trials, we don't go through them alone. In trials, we're experiencing some of the truest fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus, the fellowship of his sufferings. And he set the example for us for how we are to endure and move forward during trials. Luke 22 tells us that on the night that he was betrayed, after the Last Supper, he and the disciples went out to the Mount of Olives as they did every night. But when they reached the garden, it says that he left the disciples about a stone's throw behind, and he knelt down and prayed. There are a lot of famous paintings of this scene. I remember seeing some of these even before I was a Christian. Some of them are really peaceful and serene. But the Bible says that he was in anguish and prayed earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus knew that the end result of all of his sufferings in just three days would be resurrection, but still he was in anguish over what would happen. Trials are trials. Knowing the truth or knowing when they're going to come to an end doesn't make them not painful. If it did, they wouldn't be trials anymore. I always liked this one more. It communicates the anguish, not despair, but the pain and grief that he would have experienced leading up to the cross. But Jesus prays two short sentences. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. There is a line of scripture that would be good to memorize and pray back to him. If you're willing, take this cup from me. It's okay and it's good to ask God to end your trials. It's not like you're trying to skip out of class early. He wants us to pray for things like this to get better. But Jesus ends the pray prayer, yet not my will, but yours be done. That's the heart of enduring trials. A simple yes. Whatever you want, even if I don't want it, if you want it, then I also want it, Lord. I'm offering myself to you. If you find me continually crawling off the altar, be good to put me back in my place, because I want nothing less than the good things that you want for me, even if they're painful.